This is the Slow Exposure Podcast, hosted by me, Eliza Edwards, a Berlin-based writer and founder of Slow Exposure, an Instagram account that celebrates emerging talent within the sphere of sustainability. This podcast is a series of conversations with experts from all corners of the fashion industry, between myself and designers, activists, CEOs, and more. The idea started last year in London, I brought my microphone with me everywhere I went, pressing the red button when we started our conversations. This series is supported by Vestia Collective, the leading global app for pre-loved fashion. Discover a more sustainable, circular way of buying and selling a wide range of premium, designer and luxury pieces from their global community by joining their movement and becoming a fashion activist today. Last year, Erica Toogood welcomed me into the Toogood House, a London-based design studio nestled in East London. When I say house, I really mean house. The internationally renowned sisters Faye and Erica have created a multiple-storey treasure trove for thoughtful design in fashion, furniture and interiors. Toogood, known for its signature roly-poly chair, has exhibited in museums such as the V&A. Toogood clothing, beloved for its unique, sturdy, sculptural character, can be found at stores such as Dover Street Market. I've spoken before about my curiosity for creators that abstain from squeezing in the words sustainability wherever they can. So it was a pleasure to talk to Erica about Too Good's endeavor to be kind to the planet whilst resisting the urge to shout it from the rooftops. We're sitting in the very beautiful studio house. Do, can we call it a house of Tugan? House of Tugan, absolutely. Yes, we're on the on the top floor where the, the uh, fashion well the, the fashion team are with the furniture and interiors guys on the on the first floor, and then the the house of Tugan gallery on the on the ground floor. I'd like to talk a little bit about the beginning and where it all started. I've read about inspirations from your grandmother and a certain singer sewing machine, <laughs> and how that all began. Absolutely. So Faye has always through her interior styling life at World of Interiors her and I used to collaborate she used to do shoots I would always come along with my sewing machine and and sew odd and random things on site for her for her shoots when she started the studio coming up 11 12 years ago she created a sensory installations uh, such as Natura Morta and La Cura for Milan Salone and she'd come to me and say okay Eric I need 15 20 uniforms I don't know if they're going to be on guys or girls. I had no idea on height or size, um, but I just need something. So I would often make her these kind of odd, strange outfits, of which I think are still somewhere in an archive. So that we we worked together really beautifully, and, and we always knew at some point we would want to work together. And in 2012, I came on board with Fame, and it was at the moment that she was doing a London Design Festival. She created an installation in Seven Dials uh, in Covent Garden, and it was called Seven by Seven. Inspired by the trades and the people that had been around that area during that time, so the watchmaker, the uh, the pimp. There was 49 different trades, and we made these huge coats they were sort of two times the normal size of coats which all had dropped shoulders pleated sleeves dropped 
pockets so that you felt like the trade had already been inside that coat for many, many years. And then Faye hand-painted each one in oil paints and we put metal plaques underneath each coat and we hung them in the seven dials. And it, I mean, it caused such an amazing reaction and plus it was the the starting point of us understanding about tradesmen and women and using coats as representatives of those uniforms of those trades Uh, and in our conversations about what we should do it seemed a natural progression to move on to make a uniform so in in 2013 was when we launched 001 collection for Too Good. We had about eight or nine styles of coats only in that first season. It created, we went to Paris, we had no idea what we were doing. The clients would come along, there was emotional reactions, there was real, there was tears, there was really, a, really a, an intense moment where people really reacted well. The fashion industry was ready for something I guess we came from a completely different approach, Faye from not having come from the fashion industry, myself from being a jack of all trades, I've worked in, you know, in theatre, I've done bespoke. So we took the approach that we knew best, we did do everything from the line sheets to the lookbook, we did it in the way that we knew, we didn't follow any other sort of blueprint. And yes, there was, uh, it was a fantastic moment. And, and from there, we, we never really knew how it was going to be, how people were going to respond to it. So we made everything from canvas because we could buy five meters or 500. We had no idea how many orders we would, we would make. We printed on it, we rubbered it, we melted dustbin bags. So I guess we just challenged what, what, what the structure, the shape, the form, unisex. It's very interesting that you weren't, with your experience, because often I interview, interview people and they tell me that it's Alexander McQueen or they were at Celine or yes. whoever. Yeah. You already had the individual identity that you were kind of set on yeah. creating and having a sibling, so, you know, a, two sisters that share genetics yeah Yeah, makeup meant that that was a shared strength it's been amazing to do this journey with Faye because no matter what we have a loyalty to each other and we completely trust one another and so that is never under question we may argue we may have we may disagree with each other sometimes but we also work very silently with each other Faye is the concept the storyteller the driver of the innovation and materials material is her is her sort of starting point for everything she can see the beginning and the end of the process and then i'm the as she calls the scissor hands the the technical head the one that worries about from the buttonholes all the in-between bits of how on earth we're going to make this happen um and my sort of obsession with with the construction and then also the shape making and the form making so we have our own individual areas that we respect and a very, very sort of silent partnership. And you asked also about the Singer sewing machine and yeah, our grandmother. Yes, yeah. she was extraordinary. So she did, she made her own underwear out of parachute silk in the, in, in the war, as many women did. And she, to the day she died, she wore fine silk blouses. She always had something brand new in the wardrobe. She uh, And she had those blouses and jackets uh, made right to the end. She was a very, very proud woman. Uh, and I remember going to visit her. She, she went blind during my degree. I remember going to visit her and she, she couldn't see what I'd made in my, for my final collection, but she could feel it. Uh, and so uh, just that understanding of 
textile and material this idea of my grandmother apparently you know the stories are she used to be fag in mouth cutting around my mum my mum is four foot nine so she's tiny and could never find dresses to fit her so nanny would make her dresses every other weekend to go out in on that Saturday night and basically sew her into these into these garments so that fascination fundamental uh, investment fun, yes in exactly material and, and preciousness my grandparents were very much also those people that had their Sunday best my grandfather he always had a brand new shirt in plastic in his wardrobe so that if you know if that that day came that he had to go to something formal there was something brand new for him to to wear and I maybe in in a uh, in a sort of contrasting way Faye and I both believe that you can wear your Sunday best on a Tuesday. It's, it, you know, your Sunday best should be kind of how you are all the time. You should feel relaxed, you should be able to work, you should be able to uh, go anywhere and do anything. So it had a really interesting influence. And my mum, I think the, the, the Singer uh, sewing machine that went from my grandmother to my mum and then down to me, which I still, I still have it. But my mum put it out for me one day. We were going to try and do some sewing together. And then she she went out, uh, and I think my dad was, was busy in the garden. Uh, and I just took a windsock and took it apart. You know, those things that float in the... The red and, red and white. Yes, yes, they've got sort of strips of... To show the pit, uh, wind direction. Yes. Um, so I took it apart, sewed it all together with this Singer sewing machine. Actually threaded it. I, apparently I threaded the machine as well. Uh, so I must have watched Mum at some point do it. Uh, and yeah, it was just meant to be. And then I, I, I put this halter neck top together and Mum came back from the shops and was just absolutely flabbergasted. And from that point... She, mum taught me a bit of the bit of pattern cutting that she knew and then... Um, from her mother. From her mother. And then, but still to this day, my mum kind of hates, hates sewing on a button, probably because her mother did it for her. But yes, I guess it's skipped a generation. But hopefully we've taken on some of those rules of looking after your clothes they are beautiful objects and should be treasured and I think I you know I've still got some hand-knitted jumpers of my grandfather's and I think you always do have the odd thing maybe a fur from the 20s that's been handed down from some great aunt or uh, an old mac and those that starting point of the coats was that that your your coats tell an amazing story when you open up your wardrobe of sort of years of whether it be the barber coat or your dad's uh, cosy mac that you've worn several times when you've gone walking or, you know, some sort of old fleece or something. It was, a, it was an amazing starting point for us. I, I mean, I also guess that's kind of the beauty with vintage clothing and that, you know, whether or not you know what the narrative is, there has been a narrative um, that's been before. That moment that you open something up and you find... That smell. The smell, absolutely. Yeah. And you find, like, a pair of matching gloves or you find a... A receipt from a very long time, you know, from a restaurant at the Ritz or something from 1952. I, I worked for six years in Brick Lane um, when I was a student and just after in a vintage store. And so absolutely that harking back to the vintage pieces and wondering what that story is like. So Too Good is made up of, it's a design concept and in that you have interiors, you have obviously the fashion brand. How in sync is the aesthetic of Too Good with regard to the different elements that it's made up of? Entirely. Faye, Faye having started the studio, Faye's aesthetic 
at concept, materiality, everything that she sort of lives and breathes is through the entire house. That is always cross-pollination between objects and materials, inspiration, starting points, the, the language that we use. Faye's concepts are often also quite autobiographical. She has just moved outside of London and we're doing our next collection is based on the, um, the forest and being a small child in a forest and she has three small children and so I know that there's just this sort of moment that, that that's very much in her in her moment right now. So that, that autobiographical concepts come through the materiality and through the concepts in the house. They, there are separate teams but you know if we're doing a we did a collaboration on a bag. We asked the furniture and product designer to have a look at that design for us and actually he'd had a very different approach to a fashion designer and came up with a really interesting concept that we were able to take on. We also, within our limited edition research that we do, we have a big box under the table of innovations, 30 by 30 centimetre test pieces, which we've been making for years and years and years. So if, for someone listening now who isn't aware of like the too good aesthetic, if you will, yes. or identity, how can you, I know it's difficult obviously with words when it's such a visual thing, but how would you describe the fundamental aesthetic of too good? And how has that, has that evolved? Has it evolved now to some something that you weren't expecting? If you could visualise, I, I, I think... Essentially, it is taking inspiration from nature. So you would place uh, a piece of chalk, a rock, and uh, trying to think of something else, maybe like a, a pebble or something in a space. With some mud underneath. With some mud underneath, that's a really good point, and maybe a, um, a, a leaf in there somewhere. It's about the spaces in between. It's about questioning shape and form. And it's about a complete environment from what you smell what you wear what you sit on how you feel and the approach the pro- the approach should be the same throughout you should question everything and i think the people that wear too good clothes are brave committed people who have gone in also tried to understand the the sizing across the uh, zero to six the unisex sizing and they take on that strong responsibility that it takes to to wear the piece and to for it not to take over you but for for you to wear it in the way that you want to wear it it's not conforming to a trend yeah that's what i was about to to touch on because looking at the pieces they definitely evolve and you definitely have a core aesthetic as we've been just been discussing but i don't see any conformity in terms of trend and that is by nature sustainable and I think that's something that really comes through and it's very refreshing to see. We have styles in our collection that we've had since the first or second collection. There's one particular coat that was has been in every single collection um, since the beginning called the Oil Rigger Coat um, and the photographer an jacket. Name. Yes and I think those instinctual pieces that I made right in the beginning are the ones which were really from a very very it's like somebody's first recipe book is always the best the best one because it, they are they're so from from your insides like you've just got to get it out you've got to express it and the pattern library I'm very protective of and we 
go back to patterns and regenerate, also rework, but we revisit patterns again and again. So there's probably usually around 40-50% newness and then 40-50% existing. And there are many people out there with a photographer jacket with its big pockets for the photographer's lenses that have seen it in many different iterations from wax to lamb's wool to, uh, to wool linens. Um, and each one has its own, each materiality has its own personality. And then the trade itself becomes a character in your life, I think. And so we, the person that makes the photographer jacket they've been making it for the you know in the manufacturer in the factory they've been making that jacket for for like 12 seasons they know that jacket pattern inside out the cutter could probably cut the different sizes almost without the pattern because he knows it so well and so making something like that we are ensuring that each time we make it the make is better the uh, seamstress or tailor will come back with further ideas on how he or she can make it better. Um, We are producing a product that will last longer by repeating those styles. And that, from a sustainability approach, means that there is a longevity there. Our, Our investment goes into preserving and making sure that what we're building will last longer. Mm. And it's interesting that you talk about questioning everything because I think looking at your designs, it's very much a question of questioning identity, questioning versatility in, in its essence. We, I mean, from the from the unisex aspect, we know that we uh, dress. Uh, we're very popular with a with a Japanese male in his twenties and American woman in her fifties. They can wear the same cashmere coat, one with I don't know Nike trainers and the other one with Ferragamas and. It will have a total, one will, could be extraordinarily feminine and the other one would be seen as kind of streetwear. It is the approach that the wearer takes and that's kind of where I was coming from before when I was describing the responsibility of the wearer. And that brings me to also to, to say about the passport that's inside mm-hmm. each um, piece, which is, you'll see it's a big big white passport stitched inside each and every single piece and it shows you the trade of the of the piece so I've got a piece here which is the the poet cardigan and it gives you the initials of the designers myself and my sister and then the makers are the cutter seamstress presser and finisher and then made in and we have um we have been making in the UK. We've moved into more European manufacture in the last season, and and then also we do these particular cardigans are made in Japan, uh, and then our sizing, which is anything from zero to six or extra small to large. Mm. But we found that our British manufacturers were struggling or not set up for the volume that we needed to put through and the quality that we needed to put through so actually we have kept our coats and jackets with our tailor here uh, and we have moved to specialist shirt factory in uh, in portugal and then various other factories for the separates and trousers the machinery i think the people a lot of people questioned why we would move it out of the uk and it was a big decision to do so because we feel very committed to british manufacture but we realised that what we were trying to do was push manufacturers that specialise in other things. We were trying to push them to make to, to make different uh, different products. So 
the best thing that we can do is to work with those specialists in those in those areas and go in there in a sort of intensive moment and and if it is a duffel coat factory then make duffel coats in a duffel coat factory and we've also had such a actually an emotional reaction to the makers um the first time we sent our passports to our portuguese factory to the shirt factory somebody actually cried when they saw their initials on the shirt that they were making that it was going into because it meant so much that she was actually part of that process and then also something I failed at the bottom of the passport is the worn by so that is where the wearer would write their initials mm. so it is a documentation of legitimacy of process traceability as well yes traceability totally uh, and the fact that you can nick it from your sister and scrub out her name and then write your name the same way that, you know, people write their names in books. You, you would hope to see the sort of list of people that have, have owned and read that book. So I think that the wearer takes on the responsibility, as does the machinist that's putting, putting that passport in. They know that they are part of that process um, and they feel a sense of pride in that. And I hope everyone in that process does. Mm. And it's interesting because I think... There's that tagline from Fashion Revolution that you see everywhere who made my clothes and even now I can buy a sustainable jumper but still not know exactly where it's coming from and who made it. And it gives an accessibility to your clothing and ultimately I, I really believe that the wearer has the right to know exactly where it's been made and what's what's happened to it. I mean for uh, years now we're finally getting there with food. It's very Chickens. similar, exactly. It's yeah. exactly the same thing from sort of, you know, that farming model. And people now saying, well, I, you know, I won't, I won't eat meat unless I know where exactly where it's come from. I think uh, people should have the same approach about their clothes. Yeah, and I don't know, I keep questioning this myself because it's such an interesting, it was such an interesting stage when people, or myself included, stopped wanting to know where it had come from and kind of turn a blind eye to how it's been how it has been manufactured and I think that's such a big problem. We've lost that connection between the manufacturer and the consumer, yeah. I think partly on purpose perhaps, because people, if they if they really understood where their clothes are coming from, then, then they wouldn't be able to wear them so easily because ultimately a lot of clothes aren't made in an ethical way. The Slow Exposure podcast is supported by Vestia Collective, the leading app for pre-loved fashion. Did you know that the simple act of buying a second-hand handbag over a new one can reduce your environmental impact by up to 91%, while extending the life of your clothes by just nine extra months, reduces their carbon, water and waste footprints by up to 30%. That's why it's so important to make sure you're purchasing pre-loved, as well as shopping from responsible first-hand brands. Make resale part of your New Year resolutions by shopping Vestia Collective's second-hand deals. Vestia Collective are offering slow exposure listeners €25 Euros or equivalent in local currency off their first purchase until the end of January. Use code SLOWEXPOSURE21 all uppercase and download the app for more details. I really want to talk a little bit about the fact that Too Good seems in my eyes like a very responsible company that is very considerate of what, what and how it makes its products. And we were talking a little bit earlier about the stigma attached to sustainability and how it's, it can be very easily, I guess, judged and can be very easily put to one side because it's got an eco-warrior exactly. stance, yes. Um, which is the whole fight, I guess, that me and you are both mm. trying to reach to a point where sustainability isn't its defining 
factor it's just a given part and parcel exactly daily process was that a conscious and you you know you mentioned that it's a kind of a learning process and and i'm sure that you'll admit that there are definitely lots of things that you guys could do to manufacture more responsibly did you ever decide we won't talk about ourselves as a sustainable or a company that's trying to become increasingly responsible was that a kind of a conscious decision yes we uh we have discussed it and we felt that our approach and energies are best actually just doing the things integrated from 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 bottom from inside out from the way that we work internally literally through into our manufacturers the time and the investment was actually better just just doing it rather than creating a marketing campaign or, or changing our changing our branding or uh, it, it is part and parcel of what we do and that was actually a very brief and quick discussion moving on quickly then to you know how do we how do we make our studio more sustainable how what's the approach is uh, when we're sourcing fabrics what sort of percentage are we questioning the the source of the fabrics all of our suppliers we're asking them what, where are your sustainable fabrics and understanding that the investment is best spent actually making a better product if it means putting one millimeter more on each seam allowance so that the French seams can be more solid uh, so that those pieces won't come apart then that's best invested there. It's become an inevitable question within our just within our working environment with everything that you try and do there's always some flaw there's nothing is a perfect solution nothing is 100% unless you build it from the bottom up to be completely sustainable there's always issues the fact that we're shipping our clothes worldwide is an issue it's, it's a question i get asked a lot you know from a brand that i'm interested in at the moment in australia <laughs> But it's coming from Australia. I mean, what's the footprint there? Yes, exactly. So there will there'll always be a compromise. So I don't believe that you can one hundred percent mark yourself market yourself as, as as completely sustainable. So we will just be and will continue to be a very conscious company internally and in our processes. You've mentioned that you've done some really exciting collaborations in the past. In terms of keeping sustainability in in the forefront of our minds, how do you and Faye choose who you want to work with and what kind of guidelines do you have for yourselves? Is it also making sure that the practices that they have are also ethical and, and what's the process there to choosing who you collaborate with? I, a lot of it's to do with instinct and meeting people and just having that moment to just to just understand that you are completely in line. We had that uh, sense with Fight uh, when we did the uh, several uh, shoe collaborations over several seasons. It just comes with that conversation on how they work. It is part and parcel sustainability and how they work is part and parcel of how they present themselves. So it's already straight there on a table for you to process and understand how these pieces are made and I think with other with other with other people it's having a very straight up conversation about about those processes in a way it's not something where you'll ask somebody how sustainable are you there's just a very natural conversation about how many people are you who do you work with where are your fabrics from how long does it take? Do you have the capacity to take on this um, production? Or and just understanding how stable they are. Mm. 
instinct is such a valuable, valuable thing. And also, when I ask that question, often it isn't always the first thing to come up, which I always find kind of surprising. Oh, really? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. um, when we, we were do down a lot by instinct. Yeah, exactly. When we were downstairs, we were in the front lobby, and there was some there was some denim hanging. Yeah. And you mentioned that you're going to discontinue those pieces. Um, and I want to know why. <laughs> so we went on, the, uh, this is a really fascinating, quite expensive journey. <laughs> but we decided to make, we wanted to make jeans. So the ultimate to making jeans was to have uh, British manufacture and British denim. And we happened upon a very exciting fabric manufacturer who is making selvage denim in in Lancashire so the the narrow selvage denim the reality to those jeans once everyone once you've put them in huge too good volume which I I admit half of the problem is that I make huge trousers with um, a, a lot of high rating on the on the fabric um, so when you put the quantity of fabric the the fabric being made in the UK and the manufacturer in the UK we ended up with 700 pound pair of jeans and that is it's prohibitive in terms of how people can access those jeans they're beautiful they're pieces of art and they're incredible to wear they're 14 ounces they're super solid they're stunning uh, and we we still we still sell them did you ever think about working with repurposed on it Probably very quickly, but not for long enough. We haven't um, we haven't looked into it. It would be certainly an interesting avenue to go down. And the first question when when you say that, I think, well, repurpose denim. How much does it take to actually get that denim to a point that you can use it? How much water, time, energy? Denim is a tricky one for me, and it's the jeans are, are very beautiful. The aesthetic can be there, but then the other factors obviously come into play. Yeah. Reliability, continuity, mm. being able to uh, to give this offering. If we are going to make it so expensive, which which people have been horrified by the price, and if we are going to to say that they are that expensive, then we have to produce something that is completely solid all the way through and totally reliable. That's half of it. Is that is that production journey, that development, and how reliable is the, is that? supplier to manufacturer manufacturer to delivery process it's the the bit that no one really talks about that sort of product development and production the nightmares that happen and the troubleshooting that you have to juggle and that's something that I've focused on a lot in the last year as we have moved some of our manufacturer to to Europe we have re-looked at all of the ways that we that we work the efficiency of our processes from how we build our tech sheets to our distribution. It's interesting that you're talking about that because earlier we briefly mentioned kind of making price points more accessible and mm. and one of the big problems that I have for my work is that people will often say to me cool but who are you trying to speak to here because all the sustainable fashion that you're writing about unless it's vintage is, is mostly for the privileged and and how do we kind of make it more accessible to different to different demographics. What's your because from speaking to you you seem very aware of the fact that too good is a expensive expensive yes no totally we talk about it all the time we're slightly obsessed by it because we we know we know we're expensive we have worked extremely hard this year to to bring down the price points which we are doing gradually and bit by bit with the more volume that we have the more serious these very specialist 
manufacturers will take us on board if we have the volume. It's a kind of catch-22 of needing the volume in order to, to get a better price point to go to these manufacturers that do have machines that make collars and that make cuffs automatically that completely sort of you know that automatically cut things it's not one person chopping all day long we absolutely want to maintain innovation maintain specialists maintain our british limited edition our that high end whilst creeping down to meet a more an easier price point where people could access us. But it's a delicate balance and one that has to be done through time. And we are doing it slowly. I guess also through collaboration, it's a it's Collaboration an is, is an amazing way to do it. And we have a couple of really exciting collaborations, which would mean people being able to access too good at a lower price point um, and with some amazing companies that have incredible manufacturing structures in place and very, very inspiring. When you meet companies that make stuff on mass scale and you see with how legitimate and how responsible they are, that you can't get that big and not be responsible anymore. Like, it's just impossible. So, you know, it's really opened our eyes up to, to how companies grow delicately but with intention. Mm. We talked a little bit about Too Good not assigning itself to specific trends and it seems like a little oasis to be here in East London, away from, I guess, away from mindless consumerism, as we've spoken about. But looking at the industry from where you're standing and looking at what we all know is a very serious climate problem and looking at it from a fashion perspective, from an interior design perspective, how do you view the industry at the moment? You become so obsessed if I'm completely honest, you become so obsessed by the things that you're doing mm. that actually looking up and looking around you at what other people are doing is actually the last thing on your mind because there is so much that we can do ourselves to help the way that we grow that you actually close off Blinker, yeah. the blinkers to some degree. Of course, it's important to keep up with what everyone else is doing, but to some degree, you also have to just innovate and go with your own instinct and know that what we're doing centrally works and is conscious about the environment. I know that fashion is, it's as we all know, it's the worst industry. We are promoting that people keep these pieces for years and years. We've just relined a coat that for somebody that was that was coming apart um, from a first or second collection so that she could keep going with it and I think that understanding we're not going to single-handedly be able to change everything so what we must do is just is a is a pure focus and look at you'll be able to look at your yeah selves in the mirror and know that you've stayed true to your yes. to your moral if code. we obsess about everyone and everything then we'll be exhausted <laughs> so it's maintaining our own purpose my 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 impression of too good is also slightly that it's it may sound negative but i don't mean it to it's kind of a bit before it's time as in i, oh, yeah. I hope that yeah. <laughs> so have often. you had that before? Yeah, yes. Really? <laughs> yes. We, we, I mean, just in terms of silhouette and, and uh, what we were making, we found that the wide trousers in our second collection that probably only about five people bought, suddenly four collections later, we've got people walking in saying, we need wide trousers. Um, and we're like, well, we've been making them for a while. So 
I, I think from right from the beginning, Faye never had a blueprint of any kind of company in front of her. No, no other sort of uh, marker of anyone else that she wanted to follow. She has gone with her instinct through interiors, products, clothing, and knitted it all together and just continually questioned the, the entire process throughout the, throughout the whole way. I mean, she was at, at the forefront of these sensory environments because she just wanted to create a really generous space in Milan, back in Salone's would have been for Natura, Morta and Lacura. But she created these really beautiful environments for people just to visit and experience and walk away. But she spent every last penny of, of, that she had on those in, environments. And that the inspiration, the innovation that came from those would then set the bar for her work moving forward. And just that generosity of creation and innovation is unbelievable. So her approach and then the people that she brings on board that she quite openly calls misfits um, that come into the House of Too Good um, uh, are people that wouldn't necessarily fit in into bigger companies and want to find something that is a family household that isn't space with an awkward staircase and a, and, a, and a different way of working. It's continually questioning our approach and not conforming to a, uh, to a mainstream. Mm. Faye has always wanted to create an environment for us to be in, to be a family, and that's what she's done. So it's uh, incredible to be part of it and, and to work with her so closely. And she closes off the world. She works in a very um, cocooned space okay so let's fast forward to 10 years yeah where where is too good in, in 10 years <laughs> no, no idea what Faye's got up her sleeve um <laughs> i well that is a really good question what's your vision i guess i mean where, where would you like it to be it's it's the it's the 360 approach of everything in your world still so the the what you touch what you smell what you eat, how you, uh, what you sit on, the soap that you use, so that the too good world can be a bigger one, but without compromising our true aesthetic and our approach, and maintaining a studio that is still small, knitted together and integrated. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Erica. You can find Too Good on Instagram at Too Good. There are a few underscores in the handle, so I'll put the link in the show notes just in case. And you can contact me at The Slow Exposure. Make sure to subscribe, rate and review. I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you to Viv Levin for the music and Arthur Laidlaw for editing support. I'll see you next Monday for the next episode in the first series of The Slow Exposure podcast. <laughs>